G'day! I've failed you. For the fourth time since a year in horror has begun, I have failed to bring you a new Big Hitter episode in time for the first of the month. Now, at the beginning of each month, no matter what day that falls on, you should be checking your podcast player inbox, and that A Year in Horror diary icon should be beaming into your smiling face. You're licking your lips, you're all excited. What is this cool, handsome young fella gonna be babbling on about horror with this month? And you're not getting that. When this unfortunate thing happens, usually I will have been on holiday or will have gone on tour, which means that I didn't have enough time in the month to watch all the movies needed to compile this list. So what I've done is I've just done these as a safety precaution. If ever that happens or if ever, uh, how can I put it, if ever I cannot find the time in a month to actually go through everything, then this is going to be my safety net. As I've said before, I'm not willing to fumble around or do a half-hearted effort for you. I think every single year in horror deserves just that same focus and time spent on the craft of watching it and reviewing these movies, of making all those notes, of booking and then recording the interviews with guests, writing and recording the actual show itself, editing the thing. All of these steps, they are of equal importance to me. I just want to get them all right. So once again, many apologies, but it's not all that bad because when this happens, I randomly pick eight conversation from the vaults and I give them their own personal space to breathe on the main channel outside of that big hitter context. In this collection, we've got Perrin Hayish from That's Not Metal podcast. He is spouting the gospel on Ken Russell's The Devils. We have Stephen Hill from True Cult Pop podcast. He's going in hard on the BBC's Ghost Watch. Howard H. Smith from the band Acid Rain. We are chewing the fat on Green Room. Mike Munzer from the Evolution of Horror podcast. He is discussing with me Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Matthew Davis Cray from the band Funeral for a Friend. We go deep on the J-horror classic, Due on the Grudge. Amber T from Horn Blood Fire podcast. We join her on 1981's incredible movie, Possession. Dave Ingram from the band Benediction. We chat about Return of the Living Dead. That is his favourite film of all time. Also, as the final pick out of the hat, I chose Becky Dark from Return to Eerie, Indiana. And don't point that horror at me. And also Evolution of Horror and all those other amazing podcasts. We discuss Robert Eggers' crowning achievement, The Witch. And that, if you ask me, is A, a pretty ace collection of guests, and B, a wild collection of movies to cover and watch. 
And before we head into this chat, whichever one you've chosen, I want to promote the Patreon page for the show, where I deliver at least three exclusive episodes a month to those elite horror nutbags, which have all helped me no end by simply subscribing to the show. You lot just make it so much fun to do this. You make my life so much easier. Head over to patreon.com forward slash a year in horror for all that bonus horror goodness. And now, here is that feature presentation. So, due on the grudge. It had its proper release in 2003, although it did play a festival in the USA called Scream Fest Horror Film Festival, uh, and that was in 2002. Now, whenever you see it, it's always due on The Grudge 2002, but it's wrong. It didn't get a proper release until 2003, so there we go. That's why I'm putting it here. Now, in a moment, we're going to be chatting all about this one with Matthew Davis Cray. He's the vocalist with the band Funeral for a Friend. But that's not all he does, and we'll get into it when we have our chat. But I'm very excited about this one. I absolutely love speaking with horror nerds from the music industry, and we have a real prize case of nerdism here. I love it. Myself, I saw The Grudge for the first time in the past five years or so, and that was way, way after that initial J-horror hype explosion. In the chat, I sort of give my history with it as well, so I'm not going to bore you with it here. Uh, But as I mentioned in the conversation, I love Onibaba, but that came out in 64. I love Ring, that came out in 98. Audition, Dark Water I like, but from the same year as The Grudge and The Grudge 2, I can't believe they came out in the same year either, it's mad. But in that same time, well, I much prefer a film called 2LDK. But really, that's it with J-horror. It just isn't my thing. I sort of scoop from the very top, from the really famous ones. And I think they're famous and and, and respected for a reason. So I think what I'm going to do here is give you the letterbox synopsis for all those that have yet to see this one, which I imagine there is not many of you out there. But if you haven't, Matthew and I, we're going to spoil the hell out of this thing. So... Please be aware. Watch it before listening. Here's that letterbox synopsis. So, when a grudge from the dead passes to the living, who is safe? Volunteer care worker Rika is assigned to visit a family. She is cursed and chased by two revengeful fiends. Kayako, a woman brutally murdered by her husband and her son, Toshio. Each person that lives or visits the haunted house is murdered. Or disappears. From the creators of the international award-winning sensation Ringu, there is a curse born of a powerful rage. It gathers in the places where the dead once lived. And if you cross its path, you die. survivor will learn the truth about a brutal murder, a missing child, and the chain that can't be broken. 
of evil. Available on video and DVD. Hello, Matthew. Welcome to A Year in Horror. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> Do you put it out there that you're a fan of this stuff? Um... In some shape or form, I guess I kind of do from time to time post little bits and pieces on social media about my general love for not just for horror, but for for film in general and for physical media. I'm a big physical media nerd. My my room next door. This is this is my this is my wife's room, <laughs> which is the nicest out of them. Um, and my room is just chock full of films, <laughs> and um, uh, it looks a bit of a mess. I've just always loved loved films and um, music films and anything to do with a cultural kind of hub about those things in terms of horror or comic books or anything like that or literature always kind of floats my boat. So I've gone through um, the back catalogue of Funeral for a Friend lyrics and like yeah. a couple of titles like you've got Ghosts. You know, and but it's not about yeah. that, you know. And no, and, I mean, again, it's not about that. No, I mean, there's a couple of like, I mean, I mean, movies have always been a, an influence and a reference. And from time to time, I have, you know, nab bits of pieces here that I've kind of thought were kind of, you know, relevant to what I was writing at the time or, or encapsulated the mood. I mean, there's, I mean, we put a song out a number of years ago now called To Die Like Machette, which is one of Robert Bresson's films, um, Machette. And um, I've, on the last funeral album, there's a song called Stand By Me for the Millionth Time, which is about my love for, 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 that, for that particular movie and the, the idea of friendship and camaraderie in, in, in such a concept. And, um, and the kind of longing for that kind of, purity of friendship going back to the golden days you know what i mean when you were a kid yeah. and you were you were friends for life you, you you were always like just you and your mates against the world and going adventures even if it was up to up the mountain behind the house where you just have some crazy adventures for an afternoon and they kind of you know those kind of things just you know form part of of who i am and who and what i've written about over the years in some shape or form it's true though it's it's those times like all huddled on like one of your mates beds watching like films that you're not meant to yeah. watch and things like that that's the stuff that sticks with you forever and they're the friends that you know rarely leave <laughs> oh yeah yeah i mean i I've, I've left the country but most all my friends are still back in the uk but i do touch base and um with them about i mean there's a group chat we've got going on there with with some mates that i've been friends with since school, my school days and you know, we talk about how exhausted we are with the Marvel Cinematic Universe <laughs> and, and, and just shit like that. You know what I mean? Just just, just egging each other on uh, and things, which is kind of nice. Well, before we go into this film, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the band. Couldn't really not notice. But yeah, you've played a couple of massive, massive gigs, you know, recently. My Chemical yeah. Romance you've done and Download you've done and your, your own like successful headline tour. Um, yeah, this must keep you incredibly busy and band focused. Um, what I'm getting at here is it's been a long time since chapter and verse, you know, it's been a long time. Surely, surely it's got to be time for a new record. <laughs> um, oh no, come on, uh, no, no, 
To be honest, there isn't. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be completely transparent because I, I don't really like um, lay, laying a trail of breadcrumbs in the hopes that <laughs> I might backtrack. But um, no, I mean, the whole thing came about so unexpectedly, I think, for all of us uh, and through a very challenging invitation, really. I mean, it was a friend of ours, a good friend of ours from back in the day who was, I mean, could claim to be our biggest fan from the very early days of our band was responsible for creating the very first female for a friend website a hub for fans uh, for the band to kind of you know converge around um was diagnosed with um with cancer and and sadly passed away and we were um the reason why we got together in the first place at the end of 2019 after all the time um after calling it quits um a few years previously was to pay tribute to this amazing dude and his family and to raise money for them um and it kind of snowballed we didn't anticipate the level of uh excitement of a bunch of welsh people especially all of us kind of getting the original guys more or less getting back together to, to do this um would create and we decided for the benefit of those people who couldn't get tickets because they went super, super quick that we would kind of like do one final kind of like, you know, kiss off. Sure. And um, and then COVID came, which kind of prolonged that process until, until earlier this year. And then obviously we, we, we were, we were going to do download in 2020 and that obviously, you know, went, yeah. uh, went the way of, uh, you know, all things that went in the, in the, in the entertainment industry yep. uh, for two and a half years. And um, and so we did that again. Um, we got invited to play with My Chemical Romance, who we've known for a long time. And, you know, we brought over for their very first kind of like UK kind of couple of shows back in the day. And it was nice of them to reach out to to ask us to play with them in Cardiff, which was a lot of fun. And and there we are. <laughs> I mean, there's no long term goal. I mean, you'd say like I should be we, we're band focused, but really not really uh, because there's nothing to really focus on um the band is still kind of kind of dead really i mean Crazy. it's like yeah we're not doing anything i mean I'm, I'm not interested i don't think any of us are really interested in kind of when i said chapter and verse was the 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 drawing of the line underneath you know for a friend's kind of career for me it was also drawing a line underneath what i hope to achieve within the band right and i kind of feel like to try to add something to it now would kind of ruin it for me. So um so I'm I'm happy to kind of go out there and blast through the old songs and make people happy and stuff. And the people who maybe never got to see us. I know there's a crazy amount of people and kids who grew up who were, you know, experienced our albums through their parents' uh fan fandom of the band and getting to see it's people so come yeah, I know from it's getting some people to come to see our shows and kids, teenagers coming to our shows for the first time was bewildering <laughs> to be honest <laughs> you never think you're going to be one of those bands but um but no i mean it's 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 been great i mean it's been great from a point of view of reconnecting with the guys as well in in the band and um especially darren and ryan who who had bogged off <laughs> a long time ago who are now back on board and doing stuff and i mean the live thing is interesting because you know there are there are opportunities there that we can kind of jump on stuff if we feel like it and 
you know, there's always celebrations and stuff that we can kind of manage to to cook up. I guess if we're feeling a bit bored, <laughs> I want to play yeah. a couple of songs together. But um, the idea of writing new stuff is a bit is a bit lost on us. I tell you what, the temptation must be there in the practice room, though. Um, I, I I I know from my experience, like I I'm in a band, I manage. Yeah. Bands. You know, yeah. it's a ton of work and it just all bleeds into each other, which brings me on to my next little thing here. Like also through following you, I know that you work for Avocado Bookings. Uh, yeah. And that, might, again, such a, a, a job that isn't like any normal job. These jobs that we have in the music industry, especially yeah. now sort of COVID is gone. They're 24-hour things. You never know when you're going to get that text from a band <laughs> on tour uh, going, oh, God, help me. You know, you never yeah, know. But how do you juggle all that stuff? Um, Honestly, I can't answer. I have no idea. Just, just you just, you, <laughs> you, I have no idea. I have no idea. It is. It's literally, I mean, you know, my, my you know, job is, I mean, I work with the, with agents, the other, the other agents in the, in the company and other people in the company as well who are, far their jobs are far more intensive than, than mine are i mean the bands that i work with thankfully are very easygoing and i mean, I mean from my point of view i work with like a, a drop in the ocean of a roster than what our other other agents and stuff have but it's fun i think that's what what kind of has to be really isn't it i mean if you're involved in music at any point i mean it's a can be a torturous experience but it can also be a very uplifting and rewarding one especially when things go right and um you know everything all everything kind of goes the way it should and you you see the benefits you see the end product you see a successful tour roll around especially post covid i mean that oh god the relief the relief of things (laughs) starting to move to a position where you can claim to for it to be like normal again i mean it's yeah i mean it's it's been really nice and uh it's been cool because i mean a lot of bands have been doing so many cool things during the lockdown keeping busy as, as i think it's because of necessity i mean it's been really interesting to see the outpouring of of, of creativity that's just developed through the the way that everything kind of like shifted and um yeah it's been yeah. my as a music fan as you 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 no doubt know it's been really rich just kind of discovering really cool new shit coming out as, lo- as long as we don't have to watch new like live streams uh, oh that can get in the bin that shit can get in the bin <laughs> i mean i mean it's, it served its pur- i mean it served its purpose i mean it's, it's good to know that there's a there, there's like a fallback kind of thing to a certain degree but you can't beat that experience can you really i mean of a, of a live show or of of being there just experiencing stuff with other people that the sheer kind of the energy that comes from it i mean when we did with funeral the first thing we did post covid was do slam dunk at that point the uk started doing stuff none of the other european countries have started doing anything so it was my first experience of coming out of covid into an environment where it wasn't just me my wife my sister-in-law my mother-in-law our animals and and that crowd was huge there was that was insane it was it was bonkers i literally did make i mean um marco my boss the other agent um the lead agent for avocado was also there because we had a bunch of bands playing as well and it was just like we were both just like (laughs) what the fuck this is like insane this is how it should be this is how it's meant to be so it's been very cool 
Yeah, I, I want to just congratulate you as well. I saw your face when you were playing um, their My Chemical Romance gig. And like, I don't know if I've seen someone that happy on stage before. <laughs> like, I can't imagine just like what was going through your head. You, you were beaming. I can't recall. It was literally, it was so insane. I can't remember. I mean, <laughs> it was just a flash. And it was literally like I had a clock at my feet telling me I had 45 minutes to play. And it was going down. <laughs> I mean, I think it was pure like adrenaline just thinking, shit you know what i mean I, i've literally got to get off in 45 minutes i can't dig, <laughs> i can't dig around there was literally a giant fucking clock on the floor and i was like Brilliant. this is insane but cool all right well hey let's talk about horror that's what we're here for yes yes, um, yes okay so for those that don't know including myself like what's your yes. history with this stuff like how did you first get into oh, it what, you, what were your initial loves wow this is crazy i mean because i as a kid horror terrified me i mean even from like doctor who shit you know like i used, yeah, to, yeah. I used to watch doctor who and especially the sylvester mccoy stuff i mean there's like um uh, an episode of the series we call the sea devils where there was like almost like vampiric sea creatures and it fucking terrified me as a kid and i try to stay away from it as much as possible when i was growing up because my lit discovering now that i have a um a capacity for my my brain filters things differently to to the normal kind of way of things i would really get worked up about things that terrified me strong emotional kind of stuff wow and so horror really did really really did ter- when i say terrified me as a kid it, it terrified me my terrors and that kind of wow. shit um i made the mistake of i remember vividly coming back from a um, pantomime with my mother and some friends and my younger brother and stuff when I was a kid and my dad and we would come home late and my dad was watching the end of the fog on tv and there was the scene where the lighthouse was being kind of bombarded and Adrian you know was kind of running through the the lighthouse trying to escape the the fog and the 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 ships of the, the the pirate crew and whatnot and it was horrific I remember like that sticking in my mind and I was just like terrified and like obviously things like Lost Boys when I was growing up in like the eight in the in the mid 80s I was at that kind of cusp where it just literally just stayed with me and it, it scared the shit out of me and it wasn't until my like mid-teens until I was going to say probably about 16 or 17 where going to college and stuff and things after school and after um, I mean, I loved film in a kind of easygoing capacity but discovering things like Reservoir Dogs in like when I was like 13 or 14 and then segueing into a lot of like the indie uh, US indie cinema kind of really brought me into a massive, massive obsessive interest in, in, in film. And then that obviously kind of when I was old enough to get my blockbuster card, <laughs> I was it was literally VHS after VHS of everything that I kind of missed out on when I was um, when I was a kid. So I literally um, you know went went into all the horror staples i did the ha- i did halloween i did friday the 13th i did child's play i did nightmare on elm street and nightmare on elm street is the one that terror still to this day gives me the <laughs> is the one that kind of really unsettles me still because anything to do with something getting you in your sleep that's it it's fucked fuck, man it's fucked <laughs> but yeah i mean it was a it was a progress of being absolutely terrified by the stuff that kind of led me to it and fall completely in love with the genre uh, later on and then obviously getting into things like you know and I've always loved John Carpenter from that point I mean in the mouth of madness was one of my 
it was one of the, I mean, obviously, apart from Halloween, was one of the kind of early experiences that I had with John's stuff with the master of, of should, I, should I say, because I, oh, I love I love John Carpenter. And then kind of, I, I just, you know, just kind of went through the whole thing and just his filmography and just love it. And The Fog has become one of my film favourites um, oh. after, after all these years, after all these years. One I go to quite often, usually along with Halloween, at least once a year. That's pretty similar to a lot of people's stories that I've heard when it starts with Doctor Who and that's when you know that you might might not be built for this stuff at a young age because it's just on telly and it's quite early on. So, you know... It's it's, a bit subversive as well. I mean, you just look at it now and I mean, I still love Doctor Who and I've just been collecting these... um, these sets of like the the original like the the original seasons and stuff wow. and just revisiting especially the the Sylvester McCoy stuff because I wanted just an interest in seeing if it holds up if it still gives you know gives me that kind of shivered on the back and there's um I mean there's some really odd it's so bizarre how this stuff could have been broadcast I mean to be fair in the 80s and even the 70s UK television especially kids television was littered with stuff that was literally horror <laughs> Really, I mean, straight up, straight up. I mean, Children of the Stones and stuff like that. I mean, it's yeah. like that's that stuff will stay with you for the rest of your life. I, <laughs> I often wonder just why is everyone not like us? Because we were all brought up at that time, and and we were watching. They were all thing. playing football. What they were all out <laughs> playing football in the summer. We were there having our tea after school and watching Go things there. like cho- <laughs> chalky, watching things like chalky and things like that. You know what I mean? Just Jesus Christ. Scarred for life. <laughs> so we, we move a bit later on. Are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we get to sort of the J-horror. And I, I didn't yeah, yeah. get into J-horror straight away because all my friends sort of attached to it and I wanted stuff that was my own. But I think it was because the films were so good. It opened up a whole new world of movies for people because, right, okay, there's other countries, there's other languages, and I'm not going to be put off by that anymore. I'm just going to yeah. delve in. And I think that's what was so special about it. And as I say, when I eventually did get to J-Horror, it that's exactly what it did to me. I'm wondering, is that the same as it hit you with J-Horror? Um, I mean, I've always dug out and tried to find kind of things that fit my own kind of niche, really. I've always kind of, you know, walked my own path when it comes to, you know, those kind of things. And none of my friends growing up were really into it. But I honestly, and I honestly can't really and remember how I discovered Ring because Ring was the first film which was like lauded by was literally critically that was the mainstream that was the one that was like you know Japanese horror this is like a film that's going to like literally destroy your mind you know what I mean and and I I was game I I, I mean this was like the late 90s um, and I was just kind of coming into like I mean I'm, I'm 43 this year so for me it's like it was that time where I was kind of like really firmly planted in horror and, and loving the kind of things like all science fiction horror anything to do with horror alien alien all that stuff was like totally in my wheelhouse i was like yeah big fan time for something fresh i don't think anything could have prepared me for the sheer force of nature of a japanese horror film um because it's so unique in the way it kind of like takes elements of western cinema and firmly attaches this old cultural kind of like um, folklore and ideals and and even even theatrical kind of it's it's theater history into how it's portrayed the way it's 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 played out and man 
I couldn't watch a fucking VHS for ages after Ring. <laughs> I mean, DVDs are starting to come through anyway, but the concept of like watching like something coming like that cool fucking <laughs> yeah. thing was like it was like throwing it was as if like throwing your love and passion of something terrifying back in your face you know what i mean right. it was like we sit there and we want to be scared and now the medium with which we love is terrifying us through the capacity of like the physical media the format the way a uh, a curse can travel through something such as that and i think that's so unique and so special i mean it's one of my all-time favorites and then it kind of like snowballed. I mean, once that kind of fl- once that kind of little drop had hit of like, you know, that little drug, yes. <laughs> it's like, and it's like, it's everybody jumped on it. I mean, Tartan Video was like literally the Asia Extreme label was just like boom. Love it. I and love it, it, it. Didn't, it didn't matter what it was, did it really? I mean, whether it was horror or not, you just kind of took a chance on a film because you thought, well, it's it's from it's from Asia. They they've got some fucking weird shit going on. Um, it's totally totally not representative of any western kind of idea of horror and it's you and it's there was so much to to fucking dive into i mean there was so many things that just came you know through real shoddy transfers to uh i mean you just took where you could i mean that point you didn't give a shit about transfers or fucking you just wanted to get the rush so um so yeah ring was the gateway and then obviously the the sequels and um and then obviously the film that we're just we're, we're talking about came about came about a few years later and not i wouldn't say reinvented the wheel but put it's it literally stuck its own flag in the ground in terms of what it was doing in the in the genre and what it could offer and i think it was a very very significant film um for a lot of western audiences um who who, who fell in love with with uh, Eastern um, horror films? I I can't agree more. I mean, this is this is the experience that so many people had. I feel like such an idiot. I came into it via the American remake. Like that's what I watched first, and I, I loved it. And that's when I thought, right, let's just let's just do it. Let's just dive in. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I loved it. But I've realised that like I was such a I don't know, ignorance is the wrong word, but I was so up myself that I just put it off for so long and I ruined that whole explosion. I remember Dark Water coming out on that that Tartan Extreme thing and I yeah. passed, passed it up. I'm like, what an idiot. What an idiot. Audition. Ah. One that I yeah, no, oh my God. I mean, you know, Miki Takashi is just... Right. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, mind-blowing. Mind bl- I mean, not just because of his work within the horror format, but just across... I mean, he's, he, he can work in any genre of, of, of film, whether it's, ga- you, know, you know, gangster films and stuff and things like that, and put a mind-bending, you know, vibe to it. The same with Shinya Tsukamoto as well, with, you know, Tetsuo. I can only imagine, just... like, what it's like for you to be, like, at that time, just going through all these new things and experiences and culture. I was I was going to say, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, and I, was, I, I can't believe I missed this. So my first experience with Japanese horror predominantly came through anime. Um, in 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 my in my early in my early teens, um, having discovered films like Akira and then Fist of the North Star, like the early manga video stuff, and then um, being totally exposed with like getting together with your friends and seeing something you shouldn't see at that early at that age when you're like in your early teens and seeing you know Legend of the Overfiend and stuff and things like that. You know, what I mean, it's like this is fucked. <laughs> 
this is fucked up. This is a cartoon doing things that you just don't, you know, this isn't DuckTales, people. <laughs> I, I, I loved, I went to my friends with a copy of Akira and I was like, I'm, I'm, I think I really like this stuff. And they're like, it's, you're at Sakadoji now, man. It's like, oh, yeah, come on, I'm, I mean, I've missed I, out so much. And to be honest, I mean, my mother bought me Akira. I mean, she didn't have a fucking clue. <laughs> Bless her. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you just, you know, you take your kids to the comic shop and you you go, Mom, can you buy that for me? And um, and she was like, you know, it's your birthday. Yeah, go on then. <laughs> and you come home where, and you and your brother sit down and you just watch this, like, you know, onslaught of just pure excellence. And um, and then that just kind of trickles in, doesn't it? I mean, it's like things like horror then, it's just... I mean, you know, when Japanese cinema came to be a prevalent thing in my life, then it was just like, you know, it's part and parcel. It's a cultural thing. It's a whole package. So I love Japan so much. Well, does the grudge, Juan, uh, the grudge, Juan, yeah. stand out uh, amongst this pack? It, I mean, it does because, I mean, it's very unique in the way that it's structured and the way the, the story is told. And that's what something that stood out to me that's when I was watching idea. it for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> It's literally, I mean, you have to, I mean, the first watch was just like, I was just like, what? <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, it, you, you feel like you got it. You feel like, you know, the first like 40 minutes, 45 minutes, you think, okay, I've got this. And then you just like, all bets are off. You're like, what, is this just jump fucking 10 years into the future or something? What? I mean. What's the schoolgirls? That was my, I said it it's out done, loud. It's done, fun, it's, done, it's done a fun, it's done a fun, yeah. I, I, to be honest, I watched it earlier today. I mean, it's such a fucking <laughs> crime that this film hasn't been given a proper upgrade yet. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's mind boggling because it's, I mean, it's, it's so influential. I mean, to the point where now, I mean, it's exhausting the, the, the sequel side of things. I think I've, I, I like the second film. I bought that on bootleg on tour in the U S um, when we were on tour once. And I loved the second one as well. I mean, I thought it's not as good as the first one, but I did like the second one. And then there's like all these other ones that have now just come come out and done stuff. And now there's it's just it's just you got things like the, the Netflix thing, which which I did enjoy. I did enjoy that Netflix series they did uh, because I thought that went back to the kind of root of what the original was about, and I thought that was very interesting. I watched the 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 American remakes, which I enjoyed. As a just casual, like I'm not gonna, I'm I'm not like a cinephile, you know, up my own ass kind of thing. I mean, I enjoy films for enjoying films. I do sure. have a passion for certain kinds of films, but I do throw on films just because I want to veg out. You know what I mean? I want to just kind of let myself go and and enjoy something. And the Americans did deliver that, even though I kind of re, I really appreciate the fact that they were directed by the same filmmaking team that did that was responsible for the original uh, Japanese version. Uh, even if it was like a kind of like Gus Van Sant psycho, almost like shot to shot kind right. of thing. But it kind of gives it its own kind of unique kind of a layered backstory, which is kind of hinted at in the original Japanese film, but kind of fleshed out a bit more in the American one, which is interesting, I thought. But we're talking about the original. And <laughs> I think... It still holds up. I mean, I watched it today and it still gives you that eerie thing where, you know, you follow the characters around the different kind of ways it, it links. The, the sound design is terrifying, still terrifying. And I can't wait to hear it eventually when somebody drops an Atmos kind of um, version of that, you know, proper, you know, remastered high definition audio. 
because it it's it's iconic as much as ring as much as you know the whole videotape the you know coming to get you the the whole the fact that this house this place where this horrific event occurred is a virus in itself which is interesting because I was watching the like at the end of the film I don't know if you've seen it recently Paul but the um Kiyoshi Kurosawa's pulse has a similar kind of downbeat kind of ending where like the the population is all that's left of these like missing posters just like you know I mean there's just empty streets the way this 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 virus this you know this disease has has gone through the population the way that it's spread it's allowed to attack it's very very interesting very very apocalyptic and um yeah and very significant i think because i think japanese cinema really kind of pulled in the the downbeat well that's (laughs) uh, horror stuff and in the night with pulse that that ending it did leave it, it doesn't sort of not neatly but it does tie things up and you know where everything is with this film uh, with the grudge, after it finished, apart from trying to perfect the uh, thing, of course, everyone does that afterwards. I can get that, and you never can quite get it. They did something very special with it. Uh, but you, you sit back and you're like, you're piecing it all together. And I love that when you do that after watching a film. Yeah. Um, I remember Pulp Fiction, which I think is like the perfect way of, if you're going to do it, do it like that like where you're splicing the past and the future and sideways things and it all joins up. Like I love that sort of thing. And as you said, with the first watch with this one, which wasn't too long ago for me, it was just like, I don't like this because it's messed up. You don't get where I know. Yeah. And it's like the time and the passing of time thing, the way, obviously, because it's not, they're introducing characters to you in various different kind of levels of, of, of the story and it does take you a, mo- a minute to kind of to take a breath and be like okay this is where we are right now and by the time you've got to that point it's like oh fuck we're somewhere else already um are we like 10 years are we 10 years in the in the future now are we are we seven years in the future is this because the schoolgirl thing i mean obviously it's quite you know as you as you take it on now um where they kind of i don't know spoilers anybody's listening to this yeah, they would have seen by now surely I mean, surely you must have. You don't get you don't come and join a podcast like this and hang out and listen to it because you've not seen the film before. Where they they're trying to figure out what's going on with this house, where the detectives go and revisit the the former detective who was responsible for investigating the original missing, um, the original murder in the first instance that's led to all this, and his daughter's there, and then you realize that she is the schoolgirl who sees him in the house. At some point in the future, as he's trying to as he's trying to torch the place to get rid of the curse, he gets that vision of his own daughter at some point in the future being in the house already. So he knows he fails. He knows that it's what he's doing is futile because that's already there. And it's um, and yeah, it, 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 I, mean, I remember it being like what the f- fuck. But I mean, it's quite cool. I mean, I mean, I love how you know it like a lot of Japanese horror doesn't massively rely on the gore factor. You know what I mean? It does creep you out just for the way the camera moves, just in the way that the, the shots are composed, the sound design, like I said before. I mean, you never thought that a, a little Japanese kid painted, you know, dusted off with some white powder yeah. <laughs> um, and some strong eyeliner um, 
would be that effective. But I mean, when he opens his mouth and the cats, they're growling and screaming. It's just like, this is fucked <laughs> Just want to make sure but, my wife is next to me. Yeah, there is she. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, There's a couple of bits that I really love. Um, and I've, I've only gone back once uh, and that was for this. So I started to really enjoy myself with it. And it was when the cops got introduced, I really enjoyed like, that whole angle of it. And I always do, even when I'm like watching a giallo or something, like what yeah. I'm really there for is just like these bumbling cops. <laughs> I see girls kind of embracing that. I love that sort of stuff. But really, for me, what really hooked me in this time was the sister, uh, Hitomi. Like she turns up just to cook some dinner. And unfortunately, she's only just turned up there and now she's infected and it goes off on her adventure. And I'll just think, right, so if you're the postman, are you... At that point, what happened? I know it's, it's, it's it is literally as soon as you step foot in that house, you're fucked. I mean, <laughs> it's it's great. it is pretty much like, and I think that's the kind of beauty of it is that oh, it, the experiences these characters have of it are so so different and so drastic. Especially the the first character that we meet, Rika, going through the house and stuff and things, and you just, I mean, from from your perspective, from your viewing of films and stuff you just that's the that's the lead lead person you know what i mean right, and yeah. we get to revisit her later on obviously at a later date as well i mean you get to see i mean she survived by all intents and purposes of the extremes of the film i think she's the one who's like lived the longest from being in the house she's done good um she's done good i mean and it spins it spins its way around and kind of like in weird ways towards the end where you're kind of dubious as to whether or not she's the actual victim which is, you know, your brain just starts yeah. mapping at that it's point. It's like, fucking just lay back on your couch and just be like, oh, just fucking give me that mind-bending shit. <laughs> um, but the scene where, like, Kikomi kind of goes off on her own, I mean, that that little kind of capsule of her moment in the film is probably one of my favourites as well. Because that scene where she makes it back to her apartment and she's just, feels like she can take a breath. And then it kind of like starts to creep, the dread starts to creep up because you're wondering, you know, the brother calls, what apartment are you in again? Goes to the door, he's by the door, opens the door, he's not there. We get, she freaks out, jumps to the bed, puts the TV on, the TV goes all kind of like ringy, like, you know, like yeah, the kind yeah, of yeah. Concert, and it pulls into that, that thing. And then that whole sequence then just fucking scares the crap out of you. Yeah. Where it's like, it's the bed, like I said, anything, anything that really destroys the precious, quali- like the, the the religious experience of being able to go to bed at the end of the day. <laughs> Stop messing with my sleep. Get in the bin. Get in the bin. But I mean, yeah, it stands out, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. I mean, even after all this time, and it, it and it doesn't feel like it was that long ago where it first came up. It's been a long, long time, and. I kind of feel like it's kind of sad. I mean, I mean, I, my experience of like Japanese horror past the kind of the certain portent of uh, at least of current stuff hasn't been as like religious of what it was when I was at that age discovering it for the first time. Um, but there was something very significant about the films coming out in that period of like, you know, in the mid, mid to late 90s into the early 2000s. And it's never really been able to kind of hold up to its own standards, I don't think. Um, especially once Hollywood started minding it for for, for its own purposes. But um, 
you know, for those discovering the genre for the first time, it's definitely one of the two films that you would definitely, you know, give to, to be like, you know, this is what I recommend you should check out if you want to have a dip into J-horror, you know. Um, I've got to ask you, and I ask it uh, of all my guests when we're talking about films that they love, is there something that's not so great that, like, sort of grated on you this time around? Obviously, I mean, it shows its age in terms of certain um, aspects. I mean, I thought the the sequence with Izumi, the schoolgirl, losing herself and her school friends, the way they just suddenly appear like weird kind of like fancy dress characters was a bit like heavy handed. Right. I felt, I mean, to be honest with you, that was the only niggle that I had. I mean, it was weird. It was just like, I expected to kind of be able to pick up things in it a bit more that I was like, yeah, this bothers me. But because I, I'm aware that a lot of stuff has come after has nicked a lot of stuff from this yeah, as well. Yeah, so like, you... so because mm-hmm. you're, you're almost like, you've, you've literally visually bathed in all these kind of tropes now that have come about through these films for so many years that it obviously doesn't seem as fresh when you're watching it again, because you know, a, you've seen the film, but you know that there's certain kind of like ways things are going to go now. The movement, the the way the the ghosts are, the way the the narrative kind of twists and turns. Do you think okay? But it, the way it, it it's it does hold up because it does strike a chord emotionally because of the performances as well, um, which is very interesting. It's a very pure film in I that love, regard. I love picking them apart. And with this one, I think that if you can accept the structure and know that you're watching a film that did uh, initiate all this stuff that has been ripped off since, I don't think you can pull it apart. I think it's just of the of its time and a piece. Um, yeah, yeah. And it, I, for me, it holds up. Does it hold up for you? Definitely. I mean, so much so that I am really going to start petitioning these indie labels now to start um, getting that license. I mean... I've, I think I've hit that, my friend, I got friends over Arrow Video, so I've been hitting them up, um, in, like, literally, ever since Ring dropped, I've been like, come on, do on, come on, do on, do on, go on, bring it on, do on. Offer up a, uh, a funeral for a friend commentary. Like, say, like, <laughs> free of charge, there we go. <laughs> oh, nobody who's interested <laughs> in cinema at all would ever want to listen to that. Um, all the diehards. But, um, I mean... It's it is still it's it it is ripe for discovery and it's criminal that it doesn't exist on any of the streaming platforms as far as I'm aware. Um, buy the DVD to to rewatch, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got it. I mean, I bought it on DVD from like whatever label it was on Premium Asia or something was a label. I think it came out on years ago. Um, and it's very sad that it's not on anything that anybody can really kind of rediscover. I mean, the, the remake is, I mean, the remakes on Amazon, right. um, the American version, which is obviously, you know, worth a watch if you're interested, but I always, you know, you got to dive into the, the OG, you know, and um, if you can, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely overdue a release. So come on, come on, indie labels, get your fucking ass in the gear, get hunt that license down. And uh, and restore it to 4K, 16-bit, whatever you need it to be. Uh, Glory, give it a lovely Dolby Vision grade, 4K. <laughs> Get it on. Get it on. I want that in my eyes now. I want the uh, Dolby Atmos. I'm sure I can edit this. So when I said uh, <laughs> a funeral for a friend, 
uh, commentary that I'm going to have you saying that's a great idea. Yes, we'll do it. I'll get that sorted. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been uh, incredible. I loved it. My pleasure, mate. Thanks for inviting me and um, it's been a lot of fun. was some of the simply stunning score from Shiro Sato, which, as Matthew so rightly pointed out in our chat, it elevates this thing way above your typical J-horror fair. The sound design on Juon is stunning, and Sato's oppressive score, which often is carried by some digital strings, no less, it tends to make me feel cold and truly uninvited. It doesn't want you to make the same mistake that everyone else does when they enter this property. Just makes me want to run away and get the hell away from this film as fast as I can. Because you and I, we both know that when this music plays, something hideous is just moments away. Just out of eye shot, just out of earshot. And if somehow it catches us, then it's too late. We're goners. Haunting is the word for this thing. Now, we did discuss where you can currently see Juon The Grudge in our chat, but if you want more podcasting times, well, then why not try Halloweeners podcast from August 2018 and from February 2021, Fear Baiting podcast. They did a good job too, just discussing The Grudge in all its grudgy detail. Thank you so much to Matthew for getting in touch. I can't wait to speak to him again. He's all horror, he's all in for the win. Hey, 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 you incredible horror lovers out there. There is going to be another new horror chat with a band of some sort on the 15th. And also on the 1st of next month, there is going to be a full big hitter episode for you to get your fangs stuck into. Normal service will resume. I probably promise you that. Anyway, another way to support this pod is to go onto Apple and give it a five-star rating. It's not all just about patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. So I guess that is going to help me. Is it bullcrap that it improves searches on the algorithm? Is it? Maybe it is. I don't know. I've never noticed any change, but everyone else on their podcast says, you got to do it. So I'm saying you got to do it. So until next time, stay horrible.